Breaking Bread with Brilliant Babes. I'm your host, Tatiana Jimenez. We're recording today at The Wing, which is a women-focused workspace and social club in San Francisco, and I'm joined by Karen Wen Lee. Hi. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. For any first-time listeners out there, our purpose is to shed some light on everyday people doing brilliant things. I typically invite them into my home, cook a meal, and then we eat together and chat about their careers and how they got where they are today. Today, since we can't bring food or drinks into the wing, when I get home later, I'll be drinking a lavender gin and soda. And the recipe for that will be on the website. So, Karin, can you start by telling us a little about what you're doing currently and your career history up until this point? Well, I'm currently the curator for contemporary art at the Asian Art Museum here in beautiful San Francisco, and I've been there for about three and a half years, working on all aspects of art, sort of modern, contemporary, all different media, really global, but sort of pan-Asian is the focus. So I've done exhibitions, installations, and I've been trying to sort of build the collection, the permanent collection, in a way that I think um, sort of reflects the the world, the state of art and art history, and in particular I've been trying to fill in certain gaps in the museum's collection to kind of give a voice to artists or art movements that had not been previously represented that really should be. Very cool. So I guess, can you tell us a little about you know, did you always want to be a curator? I mean, the the other side of the story is that I grew up in New York, and I spent a lot of time going to art museums and other cultural institutions and always, you know, really enjoyed art and culture and music, and I was a dancer, and I felt like I had a lot of really, you know, rich opportunities available to me and that there was a lot of authenticity everywhere because you know you can go to the Met and see the Temple of Dandur from Egypt and then you know in my ballet class I was being taught by dancers who had you know gotten somehow to New York from the Soviet bloc and you know had studied at like the Ballet Russe or you know it was kind of an interesting place to grow up and I kind of felt like you know these things weren't just sort of abstract or, or sort of famous things. It was like people that I knew and, you know, specifically at museums, I would see yeah. in, in some cases the names of people that I knew either you know, as artists who were in the collections or as donors who had their names on the walls. Yeah, that's um, amazing. But then at the same time, even as a kid, I was kind of like, well, so there's the MoMA that has a lot of like modern art that's kind of cool but it seems like it's all made by men and they're all from like the states or Europe and then you go to the Met and there's the Chinese art galleries and it seems like it's all really old Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know I didn't really see myself reflected there so I always had that interest in sort of stitching it together but then as an Asian American overachieving child I also (laughs) just assumed that I would indulge my uh, interest in math and science and go into either some sort of engineering or medical profession. Right. So So how did your, I guess this is a good way of time to ask, how did your parents feel about you going into art history? Like, were they cool with it? Or was there some convincing that you had to do that it was like a a real career? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse, they had raised me to be really independent and confident. Cool. Uh-huh. So. They wanted nothing but to support what I wanted to do, except then there was also, I think, this sort of lingering hope that what I wanted to do would be similar to what they would wish for me, which was, you know, to have a career that was stable and that, you know, perhaps came along with the prestige of being in the medical profession or, you know, something that had um, um, a bit of a cachet. So my parents definitely supported me, but they also supported the idea that if I wanted to ever backpedal and, say, go to medical school, that that option would be available to me. And so, of course, you know, being the fastidious student that I was, I did go through, you know, pre-medical coursework and all of that as an undergraduate just to sort of check off that box to say, you know... Interesting. Should I need to revisit that career, uh-huh. it's open to me. And there's a little bit of a family joke that even many graduate degrees and years into my career, <laughs> my dad will still uh-huh. occasionally tell people that I'm taking time off before medical school. Oh my god, that's amazing. But he's also been my biggest cheerleader. That's great. Where did you do your undergrad? And did you, did you like double major then, or you just kind of took those classes in addition to Yeah, I mean, history? you know, I, honestly, so as a, like I mentioned, as a young person, I had always been interested in the arts, and I had actually played a lot of music, and I was a dancer, and I was interested in both art and architecture very much, um, but I kind of put that away for a little bit as an undergrad, and sort of entered college. I went to Stanford out here in beautiful California um, and just assumed that I was going to do the pre-med thing in order to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up having an accident, like a physical accident. I went oh, no. skiing with my freshman dorm and people in my freshman dorm are still some of my best friends to this day Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up having a weird accident where someone ran into me on a ski slope and I uh, tore my left ACL the anterior cruciate ligament so it's like a super like pro sports injury Um, and I had been a fencer a foil fencer on Stanford's Mm -hmm. varsity fencing team and I think I wasn't supposed to be skiing because it was like right before the competition season began (laughs) so I had to go through a bunch of physical therapy and then have surgery and then continue a lot of physical therapy Um, you weren't there on a fencing scholarship I was not (laughs) I was a walk on to the team but it was still something that I took pretty seriously so in the meantime you know I was still taking pre-med classes but it gave me a little Mm -hmm. bit of leeway to start thinking about well you know since I'm also doing this like intense physical therapy maybe instead of just doing all science and math classes Mm -hmm. maybe I can indulge what I would have eventually done as like an elective and take an art history class Mm -hmm. and so I took my first I think it was a history of American architecture and urbanism class and you know was just sort of had the the flames reignited and you know so I kept on taking lots of organic chemistry and biology 
to a point, but I think it was clear that I was sort of shifting gears. And so, yeah. so it wasn't actually a major in biology or chemistry or anything like that, but it was okay. just a lot of coursework. And then I ended up majoring in urban studies and art history. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then from there, so yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of degrees from very, well, from places I've never heard of. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so when you know you went to Stanford, then you got your master's, and then why did you decide to get your PhD? Is that because maybe you wanted to teach or write more about it? Yeah, good question. Well, so, I mean, I... So I'm like a rebel within the parameters of pretty extreme conformity. Okay. <laughs> so <Yeah>. like <laughs> at I actually know a lot of people like that. Okay. <clears throat> so yeah, at Stanford, I, I ended up double majoring in art history and urban studies, particular be- particularly because urban studies was the kind of department that was all about indulging kind of radical left wing and very creative people. Yeah. It's the kind of place where, you know, it was nothing was off the rack, so it wasn't like everybody took the same courses. You were really encouraged to figure out what your own path should yeah. be. And so similarly, I I wanted to pursue a master's immediately after college because I felt like it, you know, in order to work in the arts, you really do need to have quite a lot of not just sort of experience, but, you know, quite a lot of theoretical background. However, I wanted to be somewhat rebellious (laughs) and study this area that really wasn't being taught in most mainstream universities. So, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was particularly interested in sort of modern Asian art, you know, up through the contemporary period and in a a larger sense, kind of non-Western art and its relationship to modern and contemporary art, because I had taken so many classes in modern or contemporary art and they were just all about either Paris or New York or to some extent Germany Mm -hmm. Uh, so I did a little bit of homework and you know figured that it did make the most sense to go back to New York because that's really the center of the art world in a lot of ways and especially in the states Mm -hmm. and I talked to some professors at Columbia and the Asian art professors were like well you should talk to the contemporary people and the contemporary people were like we don't really do Asia you should talk to the Asian art professors so I found this sort of fledgling master's program that was offered as an independently accredited graduate school through Christie's the auction house and it was founded by Mm -hmm. modern art historians but it was also very much built around the idea that you need to have access to real objects you need to have access to sort of the workings of the art world so not just the things that end up in public collections but things that are in private collections or you know seeing not just first quality works but like Mm -hmm. the random assortment of things you know first second third fourth fifth quality works that kind of do end up going through places like auction houses Mm -hmm. so they were completely open to the idea of me figuring out you know how to start to study contemporary you know I was interested in Chinese art in particular but also just sort of Asian art and the things that weren't being taught at the time and so Mm -hmm. they were interested in helping me sort of piece that together so again it's sort of like a funny move to try to be like experimenting in what sounds like Mm -hmm. a super conservative place but um, at the time it was very very experimental I'm like really pleasantly surprised to hear how 
progressive, uh, like a institution like Christie's is, mm-hmm. I guess. So that's, well, see, that's it was really it was cool. fledgling, so yeah. they were open to it. I think now it's actually much better known, and they have a much bigger class that comes in. I, I mean, see. at the time, there were only like ten of us or something wow. in the master's program, so okay. it was very much open to whatever the individual students wanted to do. And and yeah. for me, the other interesting thing was that I was, you know, one of a handful of recent college graduates, mm-hmm. and pretty much everyone else was uh, doing a career change, and so these were people who, you know, were significantly older than me and had just really cool life experience. They all were, like, you know, VPs of investment banks or lawyers or, you know, doing something with their life, you know, at a stage where they felt like they could sort of step away from that sort of high-powered, very high-income career and do what they really loved. And so that's why they were sort of digging into art. And I felt like I could learn a lot from my classmates as well as from the professors. And I did. That's wonderful. And then from there, not to make your story, like, super long, which it's not super long, but basically, so from there, then you decided that you needed to continue, like you needed more knowledge under your belt, or you wanted to just continue, maybe, I mean, because I understand that with the the accolade, you have more power in your, in your field or your Mm -hmm. industry, you know, your focus, and so getting a PhD in this specific area like that probably helps your like end goals right is to get more focus and attention on art that is not getting the focus and attention that mm-hmm. it needs <laughs> yeah, well, I mean actually at the time I was really interested in finding a, a terminal master's program what does that mean so, so it was you know just a master's program that wasn't like the consolation prize on the way to getting a PhD that oh, was sort of like the degree oh, that, was, that would be the end <clears throat> yeah because okay. um uh, and, and and I partly why I was interested in going to Christie's was because you know at larger universities there are just a lot of different students and obviously I think the PhD students would take precedence over the master's students in terms yeah. of advisors' attention just because you know there's only so many hours in the day mm-hmm. and so I was really interested in the idea of like finishing the degree and then like you know really just getting out there and like doing it because I just felt like you know this this art world it needs to be changed yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so then <clears throat> I ended up actually working for about five or six years before deciding to go back to do my PhD and so now it doesn't actually sound like that long but at the time it felt like it was kind of like a long career and it was by no means time out in between graduate Mm -hmm. degrees I thought that it was just going to be my career and then of course I was at a museum in Massachusetts for a couple of years and you know Massachusetts is the place where like lots of people go for grad school and there are so many universities and there was just always this question of when are you going to finish your degree and I was always thinking you know I finished my degree that's why it's a terminal (laughs) master's but then um, I, I started to realize that for the kind of scholarship that I wanted to do that it really would be necessary to just dig in and do the PhD which is in a lot of ways kind of insane because it does require you know sort of taking a vow of poverty and in some ways sort of re-infantilizing after being out in the working world for a while but it's absolutely the right choice for me and such a really good experience and I highly recommend it for everyone so yeah you know honestly the the way I decided to sort of counteract the intensity and the stress was Uh that I I guess I kind of developed a 
not a split personality, but mm-hmm. I decided to have a an unrelated job, mm-hmm. which is not really to be recommended because you know when when you're in a PhD program, you're getting your modest graduate student stipend. Right. And you're supposed to just live off of that, mm. you know, because you are supposed to be, you know, full-time, 100% dedicated. But, you know, when you're finishing your dissertation, there are a lot of different ways that people have funding. And, you know, mm-hmm. some people are very successful at writing grants and getting, you know, something like, you know, another 20 or something thousand dollars to live off of while you're, while you're writing. And I had, you know, a little bit of grant funding, but um, pretty early on I realized that since I had a background as a dancer and a fencer that it was really important to me to make sure that I was keeping up my own physical yeah. activity and physical health mm-hmm. and you know that really contributes to your mental health and Absolutely. positivity mm-hmm. so so I started taking classes at a mat based fitness studio in beautiful Back Bay in Boston mm-hmm. and then realized that I could study get certified or sort of study with the master mm-hmm. fitness trainer and then end up teaching so that I'm still getting my own physical activity but uh-huh. getting paid for it yeah um, so I had a job as a personal trainer and cool. fitness instructor uh-huh. which ended up working out really well with my dissertation writing schedule because I realized that I personally and I think most humans who require you know food and sleep and all of those other things to, uh-huh. to sort of uh, keep going that like I'm really only good at writing and reading and you know doing all of that intense scholarship stuff for about what a normal workday should be so about eight hours a day yeah, yeah. and there are plenty of PhD students who are working like 16 hours a day mm-hmm. so basically I would just cap myself at eight hours um, but it would be sort of in between various other things so it's like I would get up at maybe five in the morning go and like train a couple of clients at like six and seven (laughs) then have a break for a couple of hours get Mm -hmm. some work done get some writing done and then maybe teach a class at noon and then have another couple hours off and then you know on some crazy days I would also then teach in the evening Mm -hmm. and so I don't know that I recommend you know that intensity of the schedule but um, I don't know that it's any crazier than what most PhD students do. Sure, yeah. And I mean, I was in such good shape. It was amazing. Yeah, and it's like you were forcing yourself to take care of your physical and mental health, too, because you were kind of like compartmentalizing in a way, Mm because I'm sure when you were training, you weren't thinking about... Right, right, because you're 100% focused on what you're doing, Mm -hmm. and it's honestly very relaxing and Mm -hmm. kind of stress relieving in a way to be able to talk to somebody about like the great stretch pants you're wearing (laughs) you know and it's just like (laughs) it's real and it's Uh true and it's not theoretical at all and that's okay you're using a different part part of your brain for a while yeah about moving more into your career now, your working career. Not that you weren't working when you were in school, but when was the moment that you felt that you broke into your industry or role, or do you feel like you're there yet? 
Good question. I mean, you know, I've been thinking about this because I know that's a question that you ask people. <laughs> and, you know, I really think that I, I broke in as an undergrad when I first started doing unpaid internships in the art world because Mm -hmm. I realized that there's just a lot to be said for having an opportunity and just jumping right in and doing it Mm -hmm. and so you know even though that was summer internship not a permanent job it was Mm -hmm. you know the kind of thing that allowed me to you know really see how things were getting done and so um, in my case my first internship in the art world was actually at the art commission of the city of New York in city hall when Rudolph Giuliani was the mayor okay so it was kind of a crazy time in New York this is in the post 9-11 right he was the mayor was that he was, but this was before that. Oh, okay. This was in the 90s. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. I thought you were like 25. Um, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, so, and, you know, it was this kind of intense period because this was around the time when the culture wars and NEA funding was taking on the idea of, like, you know, really what was art and that it shouldn't be all this sort of ugly and angry stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, the kind of, I guess, cultural turf that was being sort of managed by a lot of people that didn't really have a relationship to art mm-hmm. and were really only speaking about it, you know, in just very sort of reactionary terms. So, of course, someone like me who's sort of interested in seeing the belly of the beast and institutional power structures and all of that, like, I was really interested in, you know, just sort of getting a sort of close-up for how things were done. And so this internship was, you know, with the City Oversight Agency for Public Art. And so I got to see, you know, the process of how public art commissions were selected and executed and also just the strangeness of upholding law with very particular types of, you know, meetings and they were run in this almost sort of parliamentary way. Again, this isn't exactly when my career started, but it was Mm -hmm. the kind of thing where I realized that it was probably worth my time and energy to just do what I wanted to do. And if it meant taking an unpaid internship, it was more valuable to do that than Mm -hmm. to sort of tread water and, you know, make money and then wait for a better time to try to figure out how to get into the art world. Yeah, and and that makes sense to me too because you're you're jumping into it and you're you're like starting to meet people and I think that's probably a big part of what you do is meeting people, mm-hmm. having a community, having a network. Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> and that sounds like a really cool internship too. Well, I guess the next question I have is what was your biggest career obstacle so far slash shittiest moment? Honestly, I I don't know that it's any one moment. I feel like I have a lot of shitty moments. Um, You know, not not that, like, I'm down about it, but just that, like, there are so many reasons not to do what I do just because it's always sort of having to juggle many different things because, you know, I don't know how different this is from 
other workplaces since I've pretty much only ever been in the nonprofit art world. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, there's, you know, kind of a, a scarcity of resources that then makes everybody have to wear a lot of hats and, you know, just really sort of oh, yeah. pull their weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, sort of mentally and physically exhausting. But then at the same time, it's also really uplifting in any given day when it's, I just really think of how there's there's an element of rapidly shifting from one project to another that can't be good for my <laughs> for my health. Yeah. yeah. Um, or maybe it is good for like neuroplasticity. I mean, sure. We'll <laughs> say that. It's not great for stress. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also just yeah. so wonderful to work with people who do really care and, mm-hmm. you know, who are willing to try things. Like, mm-hmm. even if it's not what you were exactly trained to do or what you're prepared to do, it's yeah. like everybody knows you just need to sort of jump in and try it. And mm-hmm. it's very rewarding. And yeah. um, it's like I've never been bored mm-hmm. at work ever. So that's I think great. that's good. Yes, I think so too. Yeah, that's a, that's a sign of you're doing something right, maybe, or you like your job. Yeah, which is great. So, speaking of positive things, <laughs> what was your biggest opportunity slash best moment? My biggest opportunity. I mean, see, this is this is the amazing thing about doing what I do is that I feel like I have amazing moments pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, for for me and what I'm trying to do and, you know, to really sort of diversify the art world and the fact that now I'm in San Francisco, which is, I think, the right city to be trying to uh, push the envelope for a certain kind of not just Asian American, but diversified understanding of American identity and also a diversified understanding of Asian identity. You know, the the fact that I have a platform to actually do that and that I can see tiny little successes almost every day and and they are tiny, but they're there. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the the most amazing thing. So like to think about how the work of a basically forgotten artist is now going to be in the permanent collection of a public institution or the fact that I've, you know, been able to put together installations um, that, you know, thousands of people are going to see and not everyone will like it. But Mm -hmm. that's okay, because it's not about liking things, it's about the fact that things are out there and that, you know, maybe it is making people think and that maybe it's making people think differently. And of course, you know, it goes back to my creation myth of being a young child going to museums and not feeling particularly represented um, and hoping that there are young children you know especially the Asian Art Museum is fantastic about having you know thousands and thousands of school children come and visit every year and I just hope that you know seeing things that might feel like it's a little bit of them and their experience and that you know just that that representation is so meaningful for people that I hope I'm contributing to you know a a larger cultural shift that will be bigger than me and be realized more fully you know long after I'm gone yeah that's yeah that's amazing (laughs) so that is you have like you said you have an opportunity every day (laughs) but I don't always have the opportunity to have lunch (laughs) and sometimes I don't 
have the opportunity <laughs> to go to the bathroom. Oh, wow. so, no, it's a trade off. Um, so on the show, I also like to highlight what I call hidden talents. So things that are significant to our lives that we might not add to our resumes or are necessarily work related. So one thing that I learned about you that is not on your resume because it usually isn't, but you're a new mom. I am a new mom. (laughs) You want to talk about that? How old is your uh, child? My son, Bennett, (laughs) just turned one, I guess, two weeks ago. Wow. And it seemed like right on schedule, just as he turned one, he started walking. Nice. And he's super excited about it. So he's the kind Mm -hmm. of kid that, like, you know, just smiles ear to ear. And now it's funny because he's smiling Mm -hmm. as he's sort of toddling and then, like, falling. But still really excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a funny thing because when someone finds out that you have a kid, mm-hmm. it's like all of these questions come up. Uh-huh. You know, mostly who's with your child now yeah. if you're not Where is he? Is he walking around the city somewhere smiling yes. at people? Exactly. <laughs> But, but it actually brings up a really big issue, which is that, like, there's no one answer for that. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like everyone has to figure it out. Like, it's yeah. not like there's the mm-hmm. sort of easy route of, you know, something like, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Europe, I have a lot of cousins that live in Holland and, you know, they have a pretty lengthy uh, maternity leave and yeah. uh, usually an equally lengthy paternity leave and then you can mm-hmm. kind of choose who's staying home for which period yeah. of the kid's toddlerhood or in various other parts of the world there's sort of the de facto like neighborhood daycare that's mm-hmm. pretty affordable and just a good option and so it's just kind yeah. of funny that this has to be reinvented with every family <laughs> yeah Yeah, and that's also kind of a frustrating, well, for me, I think that would be frustrating because, like, does your husband get asked that question? (laughs) Like, oh, like, you have a baby, where is the baby? Like, why, like, because to me that implies, like, why aren't you with your baby? (laughs) Kind of, right. That would get on my nerves a little bit, but... And honestly, and I don't know, people probably do ask my husband as well. Okay, um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do, it's probably annoying either way, but still, yeah. um, the baby's fine. Is <laughs> the answer to that, but cool. Do you yeah. like being a mom? <laughs> I do like being a mom, but... You I don't mean, have to. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm the kind of person that have... I, I have liked it from the beginning and, you know, all of the sleepless mm-hmm. nights and all of that. I'm like, mm-hmm. I didn't sleep a lot before. And I think I'm one oh. of the few people that, you know, because of working as a curator, I think a lot of people will tell you that your daytime job involves being in a lot of meetings mm-hmm. and then you have to do your actual work at some point. And, yeah. you know, I don't think curators are the only people that do this, but right. so it ends up being kind of the night mm-hmm. and weekend work just to get it all done Um, and it is the kind of stuff that you're really interested in anyway so it's not like anyone's making you do extra reports or something you know Mm -hmm. it's like this is this is the the way it just is integrated into your life and who you are so as a result I think for most of my career I've gotten a lot less sleep than I probably should Uh so 
I think I'm one of the few people that ended up getting more sleep on my maternity leave than I did previously. (laughs) Well, I guess that's cool. That's a plus. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, the other thing that makes it possible is just that I have a very supportive family and an extended family that I live with. And so it's not on me to be at daycare for pickup by a specific time and so you know if I have Mm -hmm. to work a little bit late or if I have to stay for an event it's done with relative ease and I'm pretty sure no trauma to the kid because he's still around people who love him and entertain him to no end absolutely well cool we'll see (laughs) (laughs) I mean kids are basically a science experiment right that's what I like to say Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I love science. Yeah. Science is great. So I guess we'll dive into the listener question portion of the episode. So we have about five listener questions for you. So the first one you've kind of covered a little bit in, in your last answer, but what does a museum curator do and what does an average day look like for you? I don't think I have an average day. I don't think I've ever had two days that were remotely alike. Wow. So it's a lot of different things uh-huh. and all the writing and research and looking at objects in the collection and going to see objects that are not in the collection, traveling around the world to talk to artists or see biennales or art fairs or exhibitions. I end up doing quite a lot of uh, teaching in various forms, so whether that means you know giving public lectures either at my museum or somewhere else. Like last mm-hmm. week I lectured to a group of students at Berkeley um, who were in a class that was focused on art in Asia since 1945, taught by this amazing professor named Atre Gupta. So it's like, these were my people. So you know what I mean? It's like where I am and who I'm with is, you know, kind of a a big range. So sometimes it's college students and sometimes it's the population of adult learners who end Mm -hmm. up being docents and other sort of museum supporters. Mm -hmm. What else? It's a lot of different things. Uh I'm trying to think of like the weirdest part of my day. Mm -hmm. This hasn't been lately, but I think earlier in my career when I was actually at a gallery where we were working, you know, very intensely with artists who were doing residencies, I had to help them procure various things for their new media installations. So Mm -hmm. I once had to get a cow heart. Okay. (laughs) This was for Chojuj, yeah, for anyone who's a contemporary Uh Chinese art fanatic. Cool. So, yeah. How did you transport it? In like an igloo? No, I figured out like you know there. Are, this is this is where the background in science came in. Is you know there are these sort of biological uh-huh. supply companies. Oh yeah, dry ice. Yeah. So, dry I think it might have just come in yeah, yeah. sealed in formaldehyde or something. Yeah. So sweet. But anyway, so the next <laughs> listener question starts with. I've always wanted to be a curator. I would love to hear how competitive it was for you to become one and if you have insight on those challenges and how you overcame them. 
As far as I know, it is very competitive because, you know, there are a lot of people who are kind of interested in the work and you can kind of come at it from a lot of different angles. But, you know, to be honest, personally, I've always had a job. Like, I've never had this, had a period of being kind of underemployed mm-hmm. and, you know, wishing I could break in. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because it means mm-hmm. that I've basically been working a lot uh-huh. forever. Uh-huh. And it's like, I do think that having a certain amount of time where you can maybe pursue other hobbies or travel or just have a job that's not your life like I think that that's pretty healthy Mm -hmm. and I've just never done that Mm. so my insight is to embrace the obstacles and if you're actually interested in doing curatorial work but you're not able to do it then figure out all of the other things that will make you you because those things will ultimately make you a better curator yeah that's that's great advice So the third question that we have is probably, I would assume, a question you get from a lot of people, but what is your favorite art period or movement and artist? So of course I'm going to say I don't have a favorite (laughs) artist Uh or movement, Um, but what's my actual, like, I mean, I guess I can talk a little bit about what really made me feel like this was going to be the the niche for me was mm-hmm. looking mm-hmm. at the early modern period so thinking about the 19th century and particularly like the late 19th century mm-hmm. um, into the 20th century how it was you know this period of so many things changing in so many parts of the world and mm-hmm. so you know this is very well documented in Paris in particular as kind of the beginning of a lot of modern art movements but it wasn't really about Paris it was about the idea that the world was changing and you know a lot of people were moving from living in the country to living in the city and you know if you look like sort of across historical time periods and look at that moment when different you know societies or countries or regions sort of go from being more agrarian to being more urban I think that type of shift is what's super interesting to me and it happens in different places at different times and so it's like I'm interested in sort of Europe in the late 19th century and the states sort of more into the 20th century and then Asia in particular megacities developing really in the very late 20th century and into the 21st century I mean I think that's why I find this point of things being very different from the generation previous is Mm -hmm. what's most interesting to me and so yeah yeah, I ended up doing a lot of uh, work on reform era China so that's starting in 1978 and going through the present Um, and I think it's partly because you know the art reflects the craziness of the relocation of so many millions of people from living you know in basically rural environments to these big cities. Yeah, that is so fascinating. My brain is just like, spark, spark, spark. What you were saying, kind of like the industrial era or, um, you know, people moving from the country to cities, at least on like the, in, in the West, 
that was also the time when we started seeing world's fairs mm-hmm. and people coming exactly. together from different countries. And exactly. like, I'm super fascinated by world's fairs. And it, it was, when you look back and you look at photos from that time, anything from the East was always exotic mm-hmm. and other. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to hear that, you know, the movement of people moving from the country to, um, to cities in the East happened later. But yeah, like I personally don't know a lot about that. And, you know, in even in like high school, we learn a lot about Western history. Mm-hmm. You don't learn a lot about Eastern history. And so I think that's super cool. Yeah. Well, and that's actually part of why I, I'm doing what I'm doing is because I think that 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 sort of narrative that most people know well in terms of Western history just needs to have the rest of the world sort of thrown in there to, yeah. to give... A, a slightly fuller picture and I'm right there with you on how interesting world's fairs are yeah. because I think like you know that's that's part of the whole culture of going to exhibitions and trying to sort of learn you know ridiculous things like you can't really learn about culture by going to a fair yeah like (laughs) but like that that's something that people try to do and to some extent that's still what you do at museum exhibitions right it's like you try to learn about this really broad expanse of humanity or you know or an artist practice which is like there's no way you can sum that up in a neat way with a bunch of objects and you know a couple of labels but we try to do it and it's just kind of this this project of trying to intersperse objects and people and knowledge Mm -hmm. and then come up like with this slightly better version of yourself for having done that I think that's kind of kind of interesting and so not just world's fairs but like collecting in general and how Mm -hmm. you know especially the sort of European or American collectors looking to Africa or Latin America or Asia Mm -hmm. and looking at the things in order to try to learn about the culture or... And also, like, recognizing the the value in that art, Mm -hmm. you know, versus the the really famous names that we know. Mm -hmm. I think that's so cool. That's so fascinating. Well, um, the next question that we have from a listener is, why did you choose curating over teaching? And if you are teaching, which you did mention that you do um, teach every now and then, which do you consider more rewarding and why? So yes, I have taught in university settings um, Mm -hmm. to some extent, but I've always thought that it was important to have maybe sort of small windows onto the world of art and academia, which can often be in a bit of an ivory tower or sort of an elite elite environment. I've always thought that it was important to have public institutions that made that accessible to a broader audience and to a curious audience that might not, you know, have the the specific interest in pursuing studies when they happen to be in undergraduate. You know what I mean? It's like you you might not be interested when you're 20, but you are interested when you're 50 and sort of, you know, how do you start to engage with the material. But that being said, I think most people will tell you that an academic career is ultimately more stable. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, 
sustainable just yeah. because, you know, as, as difficult and demanding as it is to teach and do research and publish, um, I think it's sort of built in that, you know, you do have sort of semester breaks. So there's like a little bit of a different rhythm That's every true. single year. You, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a time period when mm-hmm. you have... Um, a chance to maybe refocus on your own work um, and then maybe every seven years you have a sabbatical and then in theory as you get more senior then you get to be a little choosier with how you spend your time whereas I think a curator is basically always sort of going and producing and you know to be honest I've I've heard of a lot of people complaining about or not complaining about but sort of warning me that that curators often work themselves to death Mm. you know that Mm. they they don't really retire because (laughs) they've expended all of their energy at work and and I can see how that happens because it really does take a lot out of you just you know physically between the travel and Mm -hmm. the you know execution of projects and yeah but from what I'm hearing you know about your career and just your life and stuff it reminds me a lot of um Kendra Bean who was also on this show and she works at a museum in England and it's just like as a curator or just like someone who's interested in art it seems like it's your your life passion yeah and I mean honestly I mean this is the other sort of like you know lefty wonky side of what I do but Mm -hmm. I feel like being a curator and being at a museum for me it's kind of like my my post-colonial activism yeah, <laughs> because yeah, I do feel absolutely. like uh, museums you know are slightly different than uh, academic institutions whether mm-hmm. it's you know a smaller college or a big research university it's like there's always a diversity of voices and there's you know just sort of the need to you know hire new people and you just hear different points of view and I think museums can actually end up being kind of more static than, mm-hmm. than they need to be or than they should yeah. be because, you know, there's something about the mission of preserving things and conserving things that, you know, you end up sort of slowing down and focusing on sort of the task at hand. Yeah. And I think for me, I've always been interested in advocating for change in uh, rather mainstream institutions, which, yeah. you know, is kind of uh, a difficult thing to do because there are plenty of non-collecting contemporary institutions that would be happy to do super cutting-edge mm-hmm. contemporary art installations. But for me, it's more meaningful and more important to do that yeah. in a sort of public setting where you're engaging with people who have not already drunk the Kool-Aid and uh, providing a bit of a dialogue with the things that have been going on for years and years. So. I think what you're doing now, like 20 to 30 years from now, it's going to be expected maybe <laughs> of like, hopefully of like major museums, like they should have contempt, like more diverse contemporary art. And they don't. This is the interesting <laughs> thing also about museums is that like as sort of big and institutional and in some cases public or national Mm -hmm. as they are it's still always like the result of a handful of people and their individual tastes so it's like the people that happen to have collected you know Mm -hmm. decades ago and Mm -hmm. then you know gave work or the artists who were able to achieve a certain kind of fame and status so you know I just have realized that even as one person I can do things to change and I I can't even tell you I I've lately been just crying so many happy tears because it's you know it's unfortunate that we're in this cultural moment where things are so sort of 
fraught and high pressure, but then at the same time, you know, people are feeling much more comfortable speaking out against like things that have been outrageous, that have been literally enraging me since I started studying art history, you know, about the fact that there are so few women represented in the mainstream stories of art history in collections, the fact that there is such a ghettoization of art that's not sort of the mainstream Western art, and, you know, the fact that people are finally sort of speaking out and and making somewhat radical gestures that are being noticed, Mm -hmm. like, it just makes me so happy, and and there's also a part of me that's like, see, you're not crazy, (laughs) everyone else sees this Uh too, and the fact that, you know, the, the Nanette documentary you know is something that people have seen and are talking about and that everyone's like yeah we hate Picasso too I mean you know for someone who sort of came up through the world of modern art history where you know you you keep looking at Picasso because even though he's kind of questionable it's still really important and you know the fact that now people seem to feel more comfortable talking about how yes he's important but he also could just be sort of demoted (laughs) to the position that he perhaps should have been years ago and and in so doing you're making room for an entirely new sort of version of history to be written and told and that is really exciting yes yes (laughs) i agree the last listener question that we have um is something that we ask all of our guests but if you weren't working in your current role what other types of work would you be interested in? And it sounds like you only want to do this. <laughs> so this answer might be interesting. All right. Well, so as I've been saying, part of why, and, and I guess I haven't really talked about art that much, but I do yeah. just really love being with art and sort of how it is challenging in ways that is you know it's very different than the way we sort of absorb information in most of our lives because people are used Mm -hmm. to sort of hearing things or reading things and you know the fact that it's understanding it yes exactly so it's this Mm -hmm. work that resists all of that that's not legible in a literal way and you know so 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 there's that I do like art Um, (laughs) but you know part of why I'm in it is because it's my way of investigating and troubling institutional power structures. So the other thing that I would like to do that deals with that is is like I'm kind of like morbidly fascinated with the wedding industry. Interesting. <laughs> I thought this was gonna go in a completely different direction. Um and, you know, part of it comes from the fact that, you know, I, I grew up with a grandmother and great aunt who were sort of fashion designers. And so I have a modicum of skills in sewing and cool. designing clothes. And, and then I'm also just kind of fascinated with jewelry, not because... I wear a lot of jewelry, but because I think it's just so interesting that, you know, it's this kind of, you know, sculpture made from precious materials that has so much cultural information kind of embedded in it. But regardless, I'm just sort of interested in how, for so many people, like, skills in dressmaking or, you know, thinking about, like, the symbolic properties of jewelry pretty much only comes up in 
the case of a wedding mm-hmm. or there's just like all of this pageantry and all of this thought and you know the, yeah. the word curation seems to come up a lot now in yeah. sort of producing weddings and how you have your themes and your colors yeah. and so I'm I'm just kind of fascinated with is there a way to do that that doesn't uh, I'm, I'm a Marxist too so this or, or sort of Marxian <laughs> so it's like is there a way to sort of like take the the interesting parts and the culture and the creativity and the the making of things that are sort of precious and beautiful and important and Mm -hmm. you know sort of emblazoned with the promises of eternal love to do that without buying into the craziness of sort of wasting money on a lot of stuff that is either overpriced because it's for weddings or you know the kind of thing where you feel like you're following where you sort of get swept up in trends and so you're not really figuring out what you personally want or what you and your partner or what you and your family really want so um that's kind of my constant imaginary side project is figuring out how to um circumvent the wedding industry and yeah so we'll see where I go with that (laughs) I mean that would also be a really cool exhibit just like just looking at different like wedding customs that's a free idea (laughs) (laughs) but is there a way to do that that takes down the wedding industry (laughs) I mean maybe yeah just like force people to feel really uncomfortable about like weddings I mean but I think I think it really comes down to feeling like you know in general people should be given the means to figure out who they are yeah and what they want and not have to be sort of part of a trend or a crowd Mm -hmm. and you know honestly I think um I think the best thing about a career in the arts, which is, you know, very low paid and the difficulty of, you know, getting into and then getting out of graduate programs and like all of that is that it really does make you figure out who you are because you can't fake it. Like you can't get through that stuff if you're just like going through the motions because there's no reason to because there's no like monetary reward. Yeah. Um, So I feel like it's the kind of thing that, um, that personally has been kind of useful because you know I've never had to have like a quarter life crisis or a midlife crisis because like I've just had to figure it out before it got to a crisis point and I feel like like there's some aspect of I don't know this sounds kind of life coachy or something but it's like you know most people when they're at the point of getting married and I've been married twice and I'm very happily married now that there's um, and I never had a normal wedding so maybe this is also part of it (laughs) but that that it's like you're at this point where you're thinking about all of these things and um, you know it's like if if you're thinking about them for the first time when you're about to get married um, then you know that's kind of like a sign that like society isn't really set up to let people figure out who they Mm -hmm. are you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. it's more about like passing and having like the job that pays you the right amount of money yeah. so you can live yeah. in the right place but it's like is that really you know who you are yeah and, yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the last questions I'd like to ask is what are you looking forward to this week curating <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so many things I mean I guess you know one of the the, the way that I work is to make 
like super best friends with every artist that I do a project with, but I do work with people in a way where I, you know, want them to get to know who I am and I want to get to know who they are. So uh, there are some artists in town who I'm doing a project with in a few years and, you know, they're, they're here for something else, but I'm going to get to, you know, sort of spend some more time with them um, this weekend and Mm -hmm. next week and, you know, it's, to me, this is the the important part about being a curator who works with people who are alive and can speak for themselves. Is yeah. that you have to let them speak for themselves. And I think that when the relationship is like purely business, that that changes how they can speak, you know, to you and about their work. And that yeah. it's it's about sort of cutting through the formality and getting to the place that's a little bit more genuine. So. Mm-hmm always looking forward to having just quality time with interesting good people yeah and now that I have a kid that's actually a really easy way to like spend time with people in a very sort of fun intimate way because everybody mm-hmm. loves kids yeah. and so if they don't love kids that's kind of a sign that like maybe yeah. I'm not interested in the, the type of you know sort of friendly relationship that I think is maybe. necessary to yeah to I mean together, so. Oh, and also assuming your kid is not like a jerk because right. some, I mean, and also your kid is like still a baby too, yes. but like I, but some babies are jerks. Yeah. I don't like all kids. I like some kids. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. I like my niece, of course. She's my favorite. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, do you have anything that you would like to plug or any resources that maybe you want to share, either about maybe Asian art that you're interested in or people who are interested in a career in museum curation? I mean, I guess the thing that I would suggest is that, you know, you really just, you know, whether you're interested in a career or just kind of interested in broadening your horizons, I think the best thing to do is to see as many things as possible and as many different kinds of things. So if you think you like one thing in particular, you know, see that when you can, but then also see various other things that you don't think you'll particularly like or have a relationship to. And so um, I think just kind of being a regular at various arts institutions is important and I mean honestly this is maybe my plea not my recommendation but it's kind of to to invite people who are not oriented towards art or specifically museums to maybe think about doing things like going to an odd you know ancient archaeological show that you wouldn't necessarily think about um Just because I think that like the ecosystem needs to be as diverse as possible, and mm-hmm. so it's like when only art people see art, yeah. that's like a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when only Asian people see Asian art, that's a dangerous yeah. thing too. You know, it's all about having the cross pollination. Mm-hmm. Well, Karin, thank you so much for being on the show today and <laughs> coming to the wings so late on a Friday at the end of a work week. I know you're probably tired. <laughs> This is my first night out in quite oh. some time. Woo-hoo. So to learn more about Karin and other topics we've covered on this episode, head over to our website, brilliantbabespodcast.com, where you can also listen to previous episodes, check out our event calendar, and get the recipes for the dishes we make for each episode. Today's recipe was lavender, gin, and soda. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay tuned for episodes every other Tuesday. Take care, everyone.